0: Welcome to The Legal Tea, the podcast where we interview lawyers brewing beyond corporate law. Each week you'll hear about their practice area, the work they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Herberg. This episode is sponsored by SOAS Law Society. Aligned in our values of inclusivity and diversity within the legal profession, as well as promoting alternative legal careers, SOAS stands out as a law society that truly cares about its members and empowers them with the skills and knowledge necessary to excel in their legal career, whatever career that may be. So if you're at least curious, be sure to check them out at soaslawsoc.com. How's everyone doing this week? Between Biden's godsend inauguration, COVID coming in in as many variants as there are spice levels at Nando's, and lockdown rules getting stricter by the day, I can empathize that it's difficult to know how to feel at the moment. But one of the things that has been getting under my skin recently and has gone under the radar, much to the conservative government's benefit, is Brexit. From the cost of tuition fees and visa applications skyrocketing for EU nationals, to the staggering confiscation of ham sandwiches at the border crossing, I'm surprised what's not making more international headlines is the projected increased cost of wine by at least £2 per bottle. £2! All due to Brexit. Now, as all our fellow legal listeners know, the relationship between the UK and the EU has been somewhat of a messy marriage, followed by what has been an even messier divorce which is why here to talk to us about that and more this week is Antoine Perry, legal assistant to the European Court of Justice and University of Sheffield law graduate. In this episode we discuss about life working in the highest court of Europe, specifically the controversy surrounding the ECJ as a alleged political actor, Antoine's experience as a common law student working with civil lawyers in determining EU legal matters, and the academic and cross-jurisdictional nature of the work he undertakes. So Without further ado, sit back, relax, brew yourself a cuppa and enjoy the show. Hi, Antoine. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. How are you doing?
1: I'm very good, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me onto uh, legal team. I'm quite excited to have this conversation. As are we,
0: as are we. Now, we've already talked back and forth over the summer, but for our audiences out there
1: who don't know you, why don't you give a little introduction about yourself? Yeah, well, my name is Antoine Parry. I'm uh, 24. And after having done the LLB and the LLM, I'm now a legal assistant to an advocate general at the Court of Justice of the European Union. And I've been there since March 2020. And so
0: what is it that you do as a legal assistant at one of the highest courts of Europe?
1: Well, basically, my job title is to be legal assistant to an advocate general. And for those who don't know, at the court, there are both advocate generals and judges. So an advocate general actually produces written opinions which are intended to help the judges reach their final judgments on a the case. Uh, they're not actually legally binding, but usually the judges follow the opinions. And so my role is to help the Advocate General in the, in the writing of those opinions. Uh, in our chambers, we actually work both independently and collectively on different cases in order to prepare the draft opinions. But my primary functions actually are to linguistically revise the draft opinions written by one of the Khifir that's one of the members of the team, a legal secretary. And I do also legal research on matters relating to the different cases, provide some input during meetings in order to discuss just the legal issues overall, really.
0: And so do you specialize in a particular case because, you know, the CJEU takes on a variety of cases, be it from this general EU law to say trademark and copyright law?
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, I didn't know this for a very long time. Uh, it's actually quite difficult to understand the way that the court set up. So the overarching name of the court is the Court of Justice of the European Union, which is then divided into two sections, two different courts. We have the Court of Justice, commonly known to most people as the European Court of Justice on the one side, and that's where I work. And then there is the General Court, which deals a little more with specific cases, for example, infringement proceedings brought by the Commission, whereas the European Court deals mainly with requests for preliminary rulings. So usually at the national level, when European law is being applied, and there is a problem and the courts are very uncertain at the national level how a particular European law should be interpreted or applied. They will often refer a question to the Court of Justice and then it's the role of the court to essentially provide a judgment or an answer to that question. So the European Court of Justice actually deals a lot with requests for preliminary rulings. But Like you said, European law is so vast it can be literally to do with anything at the national level, usually, which touches on European law. And so do you enjoy that, the sense
0: of not being cornered into a sort of specialization? Instead, you're a bit more of a generalist.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite interesting because you become very familiar with a broad range of laws, let's say. You're not just focused, I suppose, on tax or...
0: Thank God for that. <laughs> yeah,
1: thank God for that. Um but no you can you know you're dealing with european citizens rights you're dealing with judicial independence free trade across borders it really is an opportunity or at the core especially but in in the european legal sector more widely it's really an opportunity to deal and work with a range of uh, areas of law it's really interesting and so i'm quite interested Antoine. what is it that
0: made you want to work in the European Court of, of Justice or the CJEU? Because I'm just reminiscing now during a conversation about when I studied EU law at uni, and I always felt that the UK is quite a, a cynical view about the EU. And that's very much reflected in how we learn about EU law. Very. very I'm just interested to see the motivations there.
1: Well, I've always had that impression in, in the UK as well. I think I was when I was at university doing my LLB, definitely towards the end of the degree, one of the only ones who was actually thinking of pursuing a career in European law. Because I mean, don't get me wrong, when I first started studying European law, like many others, I actually hated it largely because I didn't understand it at all. You'll probably agree, it's quite hard to understand the way that different legal orders actually interact at different levels. You know, we're learning about principles of direct effect and primacy. It's for the normal student. They're things that we haven't come across before, especially in the UK, which is, you know, common law country, which has its traditions and its structures. So, yeah, don't get me wrong. I absolutely panicked <laughs> when I first started studying European law. But then beyond those sort of complexities and um, the way that it works horizontally and vertically. The study itself actually does run far deeper than those technical rules. And it sort of evokes this realization of the progress that the continent of Europe has actually made since World War II. And that was something that really resonated with me, the values that the EU upholds democracy and the rule of law. I suppose those were aspects or, you know, principles themselves which really drew me to the area. But apart from the study itself, when I first decided I wanted to work in European law or sort of pursue a career in the legal sector was probably during my my Erasmus year abroad in Belgium, actually.
0: All right. And, And how come? I'm guessing Belgium being where, you know, EUs are.
1: Yeah, of course. To be honest, like many people at university, I was especially at the start, especially if you're studying law, people don't really know which area they like, which area they want to pursue. And I was very much in the same group of students that were a little unsure. But in Belgium during my year abroad, I mean, I think it is related a little bit to my background as well. I have quite a mixed cultural background with family from a few different countries in Europe. I'm also somebody that's interested in relationships with people from different countries. And in Belgium, like you said, it's the center of Europe. It's where the majority of the EU institutions are. And I just really enjoyed that experience being around multiculturalism and speaking different languages, and I actually studied many more modules in European law in Belgium than I did in the UK, and it wasn't that standard generic EU law module that you just have to tick off as one of the core modules. <laughs> it was uh, understanding to a greater extent the political structures, foreign relations with different countries, a couple of seminars about populism and just governance in Europe. So, you know, it's, I delved a lot deeper in a perfect environment for me, really. So
0: rather than, you know, in the UK, when you take off EU law, like you were saying, as a box, which is essentially just saying, look, across the channel, there's this big institution, which has a lot of power. You go over to Belgium and you realize, look at all these course offerings, understanding the
1: intricate, multicultural European project. <laughs> Precisely, yeah. You are also surrounded by people who enjoy studying it and actually wanting to make a contribution as well, which, uh, don't get me wrong, I'm sure that in the UK there are a lot of students who probably felt the same way as me and are very disappointed, for example, with Brexit and now find that their opportunity to study or even work in the European environment is more restricted and that to them is a detriment. But as we've both agreed on, the kind of initial feeling that you get in the UK is not one of interest or dedication towards European studies. (laughs) Very much so. One thing I'm curious about
0: is, obviously, you've talked about your interest and passion for the European project and the EU. What made you go for the European courts? because there's also the commission, parliament, the council. So what, what interested
1: you in the Court out of all those different institutions which you could possibly pursue a career in? In all honesty, I never expected to be here. <laughs> I've only just finished my master's in August of last year and I didn't expect to be working at the European Court of Justice sort of four or five months later, which was uh, really great. But you asked me, uh, why did I? It's more like it kind of just happened. I got a very small internship in January in the chambers of a different advocate general, Eleanor Sharpton, who's recently left the court. And I spent a few weeks there and I had a great opportunity to really get to grips with the work that's done at the court. And during that time, there was a job opportunity, which I applied for and obviously successfully achieved. But I never, yeah, I never intended to specifically go down the court route. In fact, I actually applied for the blue book traineeship at the European Commission, but sort of naively wanted to do the traineeship in uh, at the external action service, whereas my entire background, I suppose, is legal. And I don't know whether those two things worked out so well. So my application for that, I was unsuccessful and i know that there are lots of training opportunities as well very similar to the blue book but at the core which probably i should have applied for anyway but yeah um now i'm at the core and i'm uh, i'm really enjoying it i suppose really it's very different to that kind of eu bubble or environment in belgium and brussels it's where they have the majority of the institutions and i suppose for some people it's a lot more attractive than the court here but uh, it's a great institution and it does a lot of important work and i'm quite happy to be working there at the moment do you guys feel isolated you know being being placed in luxembourg while all the other institutions are basically based in brussels the environment's definitely different. It's a lot quieter. And right now, I mean, I can't tell to what extent yet because because of COVID, life literally is very different anyway. <laughs> uh, so I can't tell whether this is Luxembourg on a good day or a bad day, really. But no, the uh, before lockdown, before the extent to which COVID's affected the continent, the court itself is very lively. You have a great opportunity to meet people and they have a lot of events and social interactions set up so that people can meet each other. And there are definitely certain areas in Luxembourg in the city, which are great to go out and meet up with, not just colleagues, but people in general. Yeah, I
0: was thinking just uh, going out in Luxembourg and meeting up with one of the judges, one of the AGs for for a pint seems a bit, (laughs) (laughs) the last thing you want to do is talk about work at the pub. Yeah, I suppose that's very true. So yeah, also, I mean, you said you started in in March. And what was that like? I mean, you had the internship in January to March. I'm guessing you had some sense of how the court worked pre-COVID. But how has COVID changed? You know, how have the European courts adapted?
1: Well, the court itself has actually been closed since about three weeks into March. So I started at the court at the beginning of March. And then three weeks later, the court made the decision to, to shut and i was pretty much on a flight home as soon as possible before the borders were all shut and uh, the official lockdown was put in place the court itself i think is doing very well in terms of its sanitary quality in order to have access to the court now you have to go through quite a rigid system of taking your temperature having regular changing of the masks you have to give your um, information at the desk. And so if you spend time in your chambers and working, then everything is then cleaned once you've left. So I think that the court has managed very well. I, obviously, I, I don't know a specific number of people that work at the other institutions, but I think we have a lot less at the commission or at the, at the parliament. So perhaps the measures being taken at the court, it's helpful that there are less individuals working there, I suppose. We'll just have to see what happens over the next couple of months. You say the court was closed since March. Did that force any ongoing proceedings to be delayed? Did the
0: court have to go online? Is court back in session at the moment? How does that aspect work?
1: Everything's been done online, actually. So uh, I think for the majority of people working at the court, everything has a little bit like in other areas of employment, other sectors. Everyone's had to go online. Everybody's working remotely on computers. The delay from closing the course to being operational online, I would say, was done very quickly. There wasn't a lot of delay at all. So we've actually managed to work very effectively considering that we're not all together discussing physically in meetings or uh, in the office. So we've had to adapt. We've had to work over secure networks online, on, on the phone. And so far, to be honest, it's not been that difficult, I would say in our chambers anyway, we've managed to find a way to remain very operational and meet deadlines and so on, yeah.
0: Oh no, fantastic. So at least maintaining the core of what it is
1: that you all do. Yeah, not to sound uh, cheesy, but justice never stops or uh, (laughs) (laughs) life itself doesn't stop. So So that's a cheeky
0: highlight quote for the interview right there. (laughs) Now, getting back to the work that you do, so you said out in the beginning that that you're an assistant to one of the advocate generals, but you also work in a scheme dynamic. What's it like to be an assistant to an AG? Is that relationship kind of like a mentorship relationship? Is it just like any other boss or how, how does that work?
1: Again, I I can't speak for other chambers, well, cabinets or other bosses or other AGs, of course, apart from my internship in January. But yeah, I have a great relationship with my team and my AG. He is very supportive of the work that we do. He listens to everybody, um, takes on board when we're having discussions. And in a way, COVID obviously has had an impact on the amount of time that we all spend together working. So I think it's very easy to build up a much more personal relationship with someone if you see them every day and you're working. But when we have worked together, he's been very supportive, taking his time to help me fit in. And, and to be honest, sort of the rest of the team, they've really gone out of their way to fit me into the system, really so it's not the stereotypical you
0: know this is the new guy he's going to get all the grunt work no, staying no. till 4am reading all these different cases and references
1: well i think um i think that's actually the one of the benefits of working in a european environment or one of the benefits of working in a either an institution or a court or something which isn't corporate let's say i think that you're much more likely to be treated as an equal and, and not have to do the legwork up until four o'clock in the morning just to make sure that something's finished uh, for the next day.
0: So you have that sense of normality or more, more of, a, of a humanistic uh, routine schedule?
1: Yeah, I mean, from everything that I've heard from people who have worked at the court and who have previously worked in the private sector, and also my own experience that I've had at the court so far, that's the impression that I get. And then, you know, with your colleagues, the European Court being part of the European
0: project, is is the main language English, in that you all converse each other with, or,
1: or is it It's not of... actually. All ah, right, it's not. The working language of the court is French, which I think that means really that somebody who would like to work at the court does need to have a certain level of French, be able to not just conversational, but also be able to work legally in the French language. The uh, judgments themselves are uh, written by the majority of people at the court in French. I think that Advocate Generals have the opportunity to work in a different language, so we in our chambers work in English, actually, which suits me more. I mean, I'm I'm quite capable of working and speaking French, but one primary part of my responsibility is to, to revise the draft opinions which are being written and they are written in English. So it helps being a native English speaker to do that job. However, saying that, you hear a diversity of languages at the court, which is, again, somebody that wants to work in the European environment. It will be very attractive to them to know that because you can interact with lots of different people working at the court in uh, in their own languages. You can also study languages at the court. They have actually courses and they encourage people working at the court to take those courses and to develop their language skills, which I think is, again, a great opportunity. And it just creates more cohesion within the house itself. Yeah, no, definitely. And especially having, you know, being able to facilitate
0: that multicultural aspect would be quite interesting in comparison to say maybe in the private sector, where obviously there's this dominant presence of one cultural mindset or, you know, one language, being able to benefit from that diversity must be quite exciting.
1: Yeah, I mean, we work in English in our chambers, but we are all from different countries. Work with somebody from France, from Italy, from Spain, from Slovakia, from Finland, the Czech Republic, and now Germany. So it really is a great mix of people to work with. And you can interact in different languages, uh, different jokes, different uh, sometimes ethnic cultural stereotypes, but uh, in a very friendly way, (laughs) in a very playful way. The other thing that must be
0: quite interesting, especially when you're working at the court, is having all these people from different countries which have, say, different legal backgrounds or different legal foundations. And so obviously when you're talking about a case and European law must be quite heated, but also interesting discussions as to how do you approach the law on this issue when you've got you know, yourself coming from, say, a common law educational background versus somebody else who's got a civil education background.
1: That's actually one of the best parts of being in such an environment is that kind of different outlook, because I think that it creates literally creativity. It means that people are coming from different angles. They think about complex legal issues in different ways. It opens up the dialogue and the um, imagination a lot more. You're able to test each other based on those perspectives, but also why people think an issue should be resolved in a certain way. As you say, coming from a common law country, I have automatically different outlook than somebody from a civil law country. And that difference doesn't actually clash, in my opinion. They actually help each other to resolve an issue. Does that make sense?
0: If you could elaborate it with a bit of a hypothetical example, I think it would be quite, quite interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: Okay, so, um, for example... To the extent that I can talk about ongoing cases or whatever, recently I've been doing some research to do with abstention in common law and civil law countries, and to what extent is an abstention considered to be a vote cast in uh, national parliaments. So the laws and the structure of the legislation, or even the rules of procedure, are going to be very different from one country to another, and also whether those countries actually consider abstaining to be suffrage or literally a vote cast. And it seems that the difference between common law and civil law is that there are some differences whether they actually consider that to be the case, which we at the European level have to interpret how it should be considered at the European level, if that makes sense. So
0: essentially, you have this diversity of approaches in each of these jurisdictions, and then the European approach tries to, I don't know, select which one is the best or try and put them all together to make one generous approach.
1: It's more that at the European level, what the European level should be doing is taking a look at what's happening at the national level. Well, until recently, it happens. (laughs) Well, no, I suppose there are still some common law countries in in the EU, I suppose. But yeah, so, you know, from my perspective, the... European level should definitely be looking at what's happening both in a common law jurisdiction and a civil law jurisdiction and considering the way in which to best apply the law or to create law or to deliver
0: judgment on that. Another thing I wanted to ask, and this is also linked to Brexit in a way, is obviously one of the criticisms discussed when I studied EU law is this idea of the European court being more than just an adjudicator or the sort of constitutional court of the European project, but also a a bit of a political actor in a sense, very much trying to push certain policies through its judgments having worked thus far at the European Court, Do you think that's an accurate description? And if, say, it was a political actor, do you see that as a bad thing?
1: Right. Yeah. Well, above all, uh, the judiciary is supposed to be impartial and independent. So that's, I suppose, the, the absolute baseline. So naturally, from my perspective, the role of the court in Europe is not necessarily a political one. However, it is an institution which is part of a broader political system and organisation and collection of member states and the decisions that happen in other institutions or uh, in Brussels, for example, do have an impact on the operation, I suppose, of the court. Like, some of the most famous cases that have gone through the court in the 60s and, and 70s had a huge political impact at the national level, primarily a legal impact, of course, for example, let's say the principle of primacy. But then the principle of primacy in the UK, for example, has had huge political repercussions since the European course rendered that judgment. It has created a mass Euroscepticism at the UK national level because of, again, the uh, traditions and UK's own constitutional authority being challenged, let's say. So I don't believe that the court itself is inherently political or plays a huge political role, but I think that its judgments can have political consequences, both at the European level, but also, as I said, at the national level. I also share that opinion in the
0: sense, as you were saying, that per se, they're not political actors, but obviously their decisions have political effects, like any constitutional court upholding a constitution. Obviously there are inherent political values in there, and so the decision that they make from a legal perspective, well, they can't block any political effects from arising from these decisions.
1: At The level of governance, or let's say the supranational level of governance in which the European Court plays a role. I think that it cannot escape having some kind of political repercussions from anything that it does. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly uh, a first-instance court at the domestic (laughs) level, which is just, you know... Quite
0: a distance from the first-instance slaves. Yeah. (laughs) Precisely, now I kind of want to get more into the pragmatics of what you do on a day-to-day basis, and also trying to identify what skills are necessary to succeed in working at the European core. At the beginning, you said, correct me if I'm wrong, that your, your daily tasks include a lot of revising written judgments or pieces that, that the AG is going to release or that have been drafted up by the legal secretary. And on the other hand, doing a lot of, say, legal research into these areas of law. I mean, in a way, that sounds kind of, you know, being back in law school, just, you know, your paper isn't being read by Professor X and depends on 35% of your grade, you're just writing a paper that's going to affect 27 member states in the future of the legal order. Precisely. The stakes might be a little higher. <laughs> <laughs> and so how, how do you find that? I mean, I don't know whether, you know, in school you loved like the academic part of law and that's something that you wanted to pursue at a professional level.
1: I do actually, or I did really enjoy the academic side of law. I, I actually, um, I've written previously some papers that I've published and I like to discuss and and write about the sort of complexities of the legal system and especially the division of um, competences and the relationship between different levels of governance and also with society. In fact, that's briefly what my master's mainly focused on was the relationship that citizens basically have with the European Union. So I I do actually really enjoy the, the academic side of it. As you were saying, the work itself does sound very similar to what an individual would be doing or a student would be doing at university. I think therefore that having done that at university, I don't actually feel the pressure itself, let's say, well, I feel pressure to deliver high quality work. That's for sure. But just in case AG Bobek
0: is uh, is listening in, you you want to you want to make sure that you know you, yeah. Antoine is doing a very good job. You know he's working yeah. very diligently, you know, no slacking off. Just because he doesn't feel the pressure, he's
1: he's still committed a hundred percent. Exactly. Podcasts are on a Sunday, not on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, yeah, I think that the work that I did at uni has, re- has really helped my work here. I feel very comfortable. Of course, there is pressure and it's a little difficult at times. But in terms of the legal research, for example, you know, at university, you are in, supposed to find ways to research law or at least, you know, go out of your way. So that's definitely helped. And I suppose at uni, obviously, I, I worked hard, but I I did spend time actually reading judgments. I'm so I think the more you're supposed to, but not you know you kind of have to. <laughs> yeah, you're supposed to, but then there, there are like you know there's a there's a degree to which you, you actually read the entire judgment. So um, I did actually spend time, especially in my final year, right? I spent a lot of time reading. Judgments and, and trying to pick out important, you know, where exactly the ratio was or, or the, uh, the important parts. So, again, that has very much helped me in the role that I'm doing
0: now. I ask this in the sense that a lot of students that I know that decide to go into, say, the corporate world are very much not so much interested in the academic and a lot more in, say, the pragmatic or the business side of things. Would you say it's an accurate? characterization that if you want to work in, say, the European court, that you do have to have an appreciation for the theoretical, if not academic,
1: side of law. Yeah, I think that that statement's quite accurate because at the European level or at the European court, again, judgments or specific cases vary in their degree of to what extent this statement's going to be true. But you are dealing very much with principle and the impact that this is going to have on a wider society in Europe. You have to really step back, I suppose, and take a overarching view of the way in which one judgment can have an impact on so many different sectors and also different countries with their own ethnocultural traditions, histories and backgrounds. I think you have to have some awareness, at least. And I would say that that is more of an academic awareness. You have to be very familiar, suppose, with a whole range of areas of law, but also have a good understanding of the relationship between member states and the legal systems and so on, which I think that if you're working in a niche area of law in the corporate industry, you don't really, I suppose, have to be that aware of wider policy arguments or, or um, important principles. Does that make sense?
0: It's obviously understanding, say, the, the presidential impact, so to speak, of the court's work and the decisions, and especially, as you were saying, the influential role that the AG has in terms of the decisions taken by the court. Only very rarely does the CJU decide to go on its own path. What other skills would you say are essential or have you noticed have been very helpful in terms of being a good worker or employee of the European project?
1: Well, I suppose some of the basic skills that someone should have is probably be able to work in a multicultural team and to actually enjoy it. It's quite important to, obviously, in any industry to to get on with your team, but it helps to have experience or to have refined some kind of skills working in multicultural dynamics. I think also being able to work independently is very important and being able to respect deadlines and work under pressure Uh, yourself. So assuming that's responsibility yourself and of course for the benefit of the team. More skills I would say again you know basic legal skills like legal research, overarching awareness of the area of law itself, having a good knowledge of the area that you're working in and I'm sure there are an abundance of skills that somebody, uh, somebody needs to have. At the end of the day I think it's the same with any potential area of law. Well, for the sake of this conversation, area of law, but more widely beyond skills, I think that you need to be passionate about it, basically. I think that it's actually really important to constantly question and consider the path you want to take. And I think that the time at university is precisely that period where you should be thinking about exactly what it is you are passionate about and what area of law you want to work in. Because ultimately which area of law is going to give you purpose so it is about having the right skills but also the right passion and stamina to work in that area of law i mean you know obviously if
0: you're not passionate about it or if it doesn't lure you in then <laughs> you're not going to last, last very long of course yeah your patience and your, and your resilience only last so far when your heart's not in it exactly in terms of the actual application process, just generally applying for, for corporate jobs, these are notorious for having all these different types of tests and interview stages and all these different types of questions that they ask you and having commercial awareness. You could essentially do an entire module on what it's like to apply for corporate jobs. How was your experience in terms of applying for, for the European Court?
1: So I'm very lucky in the sense that the first job that I've applied in the European court I've actually managed to achieve. But I suppose I didn't really have any expectation or any prior knowledge of how the process would go. What I had to do for mine was that I received an email telling me that I had been shortlisted and that there would be a two-part process to my overall interview. There would be a written process and a oral interview. And I had 48 hours to complete two separate written tasks, which was related to creating an overarching facts and proceedings document and then a linguistic revision of an article. And then I had my oral interview a few days later, I think, and that was in front of the entire team, which I didn't actually expect. But uh, it was a bit daunting walking in and seeing five people sat around a table all staring at you. usually it's hard
0: enough just to focus on one-to-one but then when you've got five people against one you feel a bit intimidated exactly
1: it's quite funny I actually I find that like it's quite good to start with something funny or humorous if you can in an interview just to sort of change the pace but the topic of conversation was actually coffee and there were they were very shocked and and disappointed, you know, because I'm English that I drink instantaneous coffee with <laughs> yeah. the Italian uh, ref. Just yeah, lost him from there onwards. <laughs> <laughs> oh amazing yeah
0: especially something as, as cultural as coffee yeah. in and say well you know yeah. i've been brought up on the tesco store brand and instantaneous coffee <laughs> it's done me good so far it hasn't failed me yet and you have the italian just like you know <coughs> all the light out of their face just uh, <laughs> exactly uh amazing yeah so in general say a much more welcome application process you know not trying to trick you or anything
1: No, I think that the the oral interview itself was a little challenging. And I think that my boss tried to test my character in a few ways, but nothing, you know, nothing out of the ordinary. Fantastic.
0: Starting to wrap all of this up, in terms of the inspirational message, say someone who's in second year, third year is looking to to work at the European
1: court, what would you tell them? Well, someone in their second or third year intending to work at the court, or at least in the European sector, I think that the bottom line is you should go for it. It's an amazing area to work in. I think that however somebody who is young at university and intending to pursue this path should be aware that it is highly competitive and it is very difficult because anyone who wishes to pursue a career in an an area of law or policy is going to get competition anyway at the national level you know if you want to work in criminal law for example but this is the European level and you're actually competing with people from well effectively 27 member states or 28 depending on when <laughs> when uh, when britain leaves yeah leaves the uh, transition period but so basically i would say that it's a great area to work in i think that people should really go for it not only because it's fantastic in terms of the legal side but also the environment and the people that you get to work with and that diversity of cultures and traditions and it really opens your eyes to the continent of europe and not just legal systems at the national level but in the background of that i would say that be aware that it is highly competitive so you should be going out of your way if you can to maximise your opportunity and be very proactive at university.
0: Beautifully, beautifully put, Antoine. At the end of every interview, I like to ask my guests before we wrap things up a little kind of fun question round. Uh, the question that I want to ask you is: What was your most hated subject in the LLB? I mean, you've done an LLM as well, so I'll, I'll make it easier for you and tack on the LLM as well. What was your most hated subject?
1: Uh, Land law. <laughs> Or or property law. (laughs) Yeah, probably because I didn't understand any of it until about, God, a month before my exam. I was hoping for like a a couple of days before the exam. (laughs) Well, I think as you're revising, you actually start to understand it. But no, uh, God, property law or equity and trust, let's say, as well. That kind of equity and trust and land law is just just another behemoth on its own. Exactly. They're quite a death wish. They're on make or break of the degree, really. (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly
0: between trying to understand the land registration act of 2002 or understanding what the hell they were talking about about the beneficial interest when it came to resulting in constructive trust i
1: just not only that having to answer in the exam some kind of uh, essay question about it as well. Like, for me, it was a bit. Just uh, say, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <live short.
0: laughs> that, that was like the urge that I had do the exam. It was just, I don't know. Let's walk out. Was it the land registry? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a question. Nice one. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for for coming onto the podcast.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it. I've had a great time.
0: Likewise. And I really hope that all the listeners tuning into this episode that you've gotten as much as I've gotten out of this if anybody wants to reach you antoine with any kind of follow-up questions about you know what it's like to work at the, the european court or the european project or anything else where can they do so
1: of course so i can provide you i suppose uh, with my details in relation to this interview but also you could find me, I'm sure, on the, uh, the court website and looking for uh, individuals that work there. You'll find my email and, and all my details. Alternatively, find me on LinkedIn under Antoine
0: Perry. Fantastic. Well, there you have it, folks. Thanks so much, Antoine. Have a, have a good one.
1: Thank you. Really appreciate it.
0: Well, that's the show, folks. If you enjoyed learning about the CJEU and want to know more, feel free to reach out to Antoine Perry. We've linked his LinkedIn profile in the show notes below. Special thanks to our unsung heroes for the week, Clara Herberg for editing and producing the episode, Andrew Wardell for scripting the show notes and blog posts, and Matt Gedridge for the absolute banger of a podcast theme song. If you enjoyed the episode, show us some love, subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice, and be sure to follow us on our social media platforms at legaltea.uk. Till next time.